Equine health is our business. Horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here we have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship. Welcome to our latest podcast of our EquiConnect podcast brought to you by McKee Pownell Equine Services. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pownell, and with me is my co-host, Karen Fell. Karen, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you today? Good. We have a pretty exciting episode today. Today, we are lucky to be joined by two of our vets from our Caledon and our Uxbridge location. And first, I want to welcome Dr. Alejandra Garza from our Caledon location. Welcome, Ali. Thank you. And from our Uxbridge location, Dr. Viviana Hernandez. Thanks for joining us, Viviana. Hi, everyone. So before we get jumping in, we're going to talk about lameness and the value mainly of the lameness exam. But before we get into it, let's have a brief introduction of the two of you. Just give a little bit about your background, a little bit of your experience with lameness and sports medicine. We'll start with you, Alejandra. I'm really into sports medicine. I have the joy of working before with different uh, professionals in either surgery area or sports medicine uh, when I was in Davis and when I started my internship. So a lot of my education has been towards this particular area of equine medicine. Some of my expertise is uh, while I was in Davis. So just to clear, Davis is the vet school at the in California, right? Yeah. University of Davis. Yeah, UC Davis. Yeah. Which has been ranked the number one vet school in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ralph's number four. But, uh, we'll give you <laughs> That's number good. One. So yeah, I was happy to be there, uh, and I did a rotation uh, with one of the sports medicine specialists in the university, Dr. Lejeune. Then later on, I went back home and I started my uh, equine practice. Uh, so I started doing mostly sports medicine as well with neonatology. Uh, I have a thing for the babies. Yeah. So far since I've moved here to Canada, I've been just doing a lot of sports medicine for the practice as well. Excellent. And Viviana, tell us about your background. You've got quite a a varied background in horses. It's a little bit of a background. So I've been surrounded by horses, especially sport horses all my life, high-performance horses. Both my mother and my grandparents, as you know from uh, from a last podcast about me, they are Olympians, eventers. So it's always about trying to find the best way to keep them performing at the top level. Before coming here, I was a head veterinarian of a sports team. So I was in charge of taking care of all the sports horses, especially the horses that I was dealing with was show jumpers and old eventers. My job was to keep them top performance all the time. Excellent. Karen, why don't you start off with the questions? Absolutely. What is the value of a lameness exam versus just treating the horse based on how it moves? It's really important to just to get always a full physical examination. Even if you have noticed a change in a specific location of the horse, let's say the hogs or stifles, effusion or something like that, I think it's important that we do an overall full physical examination that includes palpation, a static and a dynamic exam, because that will give us an idea on where to start and if what you're seeing is a reflection of a primary lameness or secondary to compensation for someone else in the body. I know in my experience, a lot of people look at a horse and go, oh, it's the hawks, it's the feet or whatever. You don't know. It's sort of like you've got to touch the horse, you've got to see it, you've got to hoof test it. That's why the exam is so important. 
just by looking at it, eh, it's really hard to say exactly what's really going on. Yeah, I exactly. totally agree. And horses are very well known to compensate everything all the time. So like when you're looking at a horse and you feel that the horse is painful in the back and you say like, oh, it's back. But the reality is that 60 to 70 percent of the horses that has back pain is coming from lower leg. Yeah, we'll see a lot of horses moving really stiff behind. You're thinking, oh, it's got a hind limb. They miss, you take the saddle off and then you squeeze around the withers and the horse is like grunting. It's so yeah. sore. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, there's a lot of things going on here. So I think, yeah, a full exam is really It's essential. really important. You just can't do it. Also, honestly, I'm sure a lot of people get frustrated when you just do it that way. It's kind of expensive because you're not really identifying, you're not doing the diagnosis. Exactly. You're just sort of treating what you think it is. And, and it uh, might not be that. Exactly. So Viviana, as part of our lameness exam, we always like to do nerve block. What's the benefit of doing a nerve block? Well, as you just said, it's localizing exactly the point where the lameness is coming from. So what is a nerve block? It's putting some freezing medication around the nerve that is going to cause loss of sensation in certain area. So we normally do the nerve block from far away to close. So you just start numbing different areas of the limb or if you're doing an in-particular uh, nerve block, you're only numbing the joint. And that is going to give us a better idea exactly of where we're going to do the next diagnosis, just like x-rays or ultrasound. <laughs> I had a teacher that loved to say that it was like a complete horseography. So we all just take pictures of the horse all around the place. Again, there's no clean x-ray. So we might find something, but that might be not the thing that we are actually looking for. That's the main importance about doing nerve blocks. You know, it reminds me of a time I remember hoof testing a horse and it was so painful on hoof testers. You, just, you know, you're almost breathing on the sole and the horse was like, ow, ow, ow. And you're like, it's got to be the foot. And I remember like doing a nerve block and the horse was still as lame. The hoof didn't hurt to the hoof testers, but it was lame somewhere else. And it was so easy to assume that it was the foot. Let's put a pad on and let's do whatever with the shoeing which would help a lot of things, but it wasn't it. So a nerve block helped us realize it was actually a, you know, a check ligament injury. Ali, what would the appointment process be? Let's say, for example, we were not completing nerve blocks at this particular appointment. So let's say the horse came in with seeming lame on its left front. What would be the process that you would do without doing nerve blocks? So I say as uh, part of the dynamic examination, I mean, we palpate, make sure that we don't feel anything. If there's no abnormalities on palpation, what I'll say is like, then we go into the dynamic, we see them move, and then we do some flexions, right? We try to exacerbate the lameness uh, by doing flexions. If there's nothing there, like if they're not significant, that's when we're going to be like, okay, I kind of want to figure out where this is coming. So we start doing like Dr. Hernandez was saying, we do nerve blocks starting at the lower uh, part of the foot so that we can just progressively climb up. Sometimes because of the time of our appointment, uh, we won't be able to finish the lateness. And there's nothing wrong with this. I think for the horse, it's just better for us, you know, like uh, if we take a look at it, make sure that let's say that we block all the weight, the digit, like that's two nerve blocks, uh, DP and avaxial. So then we block there and we're like, okay, we're run out of time. We know it's not the food. We can come back another day. And then we figure out that we might need uh, radiographs, an ultrasound. So we are going to put the time to do the next nerve blocks uh, going up the limb with the including diagnostics. A full limb examination can take a long time and some of the horses don't have the demeanor to tolerate a three-hour evaluation. So that is important that we can come back and complete uh, the exam. 
Is there a time when you would not do a nerve block? If you had a horse that was really lame, is there a reason why you would not do a nerve block, Viviana? Yeah, of course. If I have a horse with a five out of five. And so five is being the worst. Exactly. Talking about the lameness scale that we use. A zero being a perfectly sound horse, like this beautiful dressage champion, floaty, supple, perfect. And a five, it's a horse that is non-weight-bearing, so the limb is completely in the air. So if I have a horse that I consider between a four or a five, I will not nerve block just because we may be dealing with something more important, such as a fracture, a fissure line, or a pull tendon, or something more that can get complicated if the horse put weight over it. We have seen cases where you do nerve blocks, and that causes the horse to from just having a fissure line to become a, an actual fracture. So I'm always very cautious about it. Because they can't feel it, and so they put more weight on it. Exactly. So because they don't have pain, they feel confident of putting weight over that limb, and that's when things get complicated. We have other situations like an abscess that can give us a 5 out of 5 lameness, but in those cases, even though I suspect it's an abscess, I always do first a, se- a series of x-rays, and then I block. You want to make sure the coffin bone's not broken exactly. and make it worse. So absolutely. So let's say you've blocked out a horse to just below around the fetlock area, just as an example. So Alejandro, what would be the next step after the nerve block if you sort of have pinpointed it to a region? So you have it localized, right? You know that it's from the fetlock down and there's a bunch of anatomy structures in that area. So based on the findings on palpation and the nerve block, uh, we can talk about either uh, pursuing an ultrasound or an x-ray. That will be based on uh, what we did. Let's say if the lameness was a three out of five, and we know that the horse uh, has never had radiographs before. I think for me, radiographic evaluation is really important because it does help as a baseline, even for the future, right? Uh, sometimes there could be changes in the joints that we don't want them to progress. So we can, we need to make some assessments and make sure that we got them identified because then that's going to change the whole course of action. Let's say that we do the radiographs and nothing is showing up and it's clear. That's when we decide to do an ultrasound because it could also be a soft tissue like a deep digital flexor tendon tear. And that's an important lesion that we don't want to progress. And this might need to be a horse that is going to go straight on a stall rest, a special shoeing, and then we're going to have to slowly bring him back to work. So I think it will depend on how the lameness percent, the acuteness of it, uh, and also radiographs and, you know, like ultrasound combined can work together. If we find something on radiographs, we might not need to do an ultrasound and we can just decide what to do next. So they do really complement each other because sometimes you'll do an x-ray, but there's something suspicious. Maybe you see something like we're soft tissue attachment. So I think the ultrasound and the x-ray really helps us get a full picture. Yeah, and I guess a good example of that is like the branches, right? The suspensory ligament branches. Like I will do an x-ray and then I'll see some changes on the sesamoid bone. Not terrible, right? But then I go in and the horse was really lame, right? And then I do an ultrasound and I'm like, oh, yeah, this branch blew up, right? Like I might not see pieces of bone detached from the sesamoid bone per se, but I will definitely see that the branch has already like contracted and it's like the fiber pattern is disrupted. So the way I like to compare when we're doing an x-ray and an ultrasound at the same time, it's like when you have these 3D lenses, the one that have the blue and the red on one eye, if you just look at one eye, it's going to be blue. But if you look at the other one, it's going to be red. But once you look the two together, you're going to be able to see the 3D image. And that's the thing. I like that. 
I that's never a good that analogy. That's a no, good me one. neither. Thank you. <laughs> I like that one a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's super. So often for us in doing a lameness exam, we will come back to perform the ultrasound. Viviana, why would we come back to do the ultrasound at a separate appointment versus the initial lameness involving nerve blocks? Well, a nerve block is injecting something in the subcutaneous tissue. That is going to cause us to have a pocket of air, a pocket of fluid that we can easily confuse with an actual injury. So it's as simple as that. You are putting something, you're irritating that area. And if you just put the ultrasound, that it's understanding an ultrasound is not something easy. You need to have a lot of practice. It's not something that you just develop in the first try. If you go there without knowing anything, it's like, I don't understand. It's just gray dots and black spots. If you don't know exactly what you're looking at and you have something that looks out of normal, you can confuse it with an actual pathology. So if you do nerve blocks, it's not a good idea to do ultrasound at the same time. Because what we're really looking at is just, you know, we're looking for fluid collection. When we exactly. see a disrupted tendon or ligament, it's a collection of fluid, blood, serum. So that's the difference. So when we're working with radiography, we're looking for the density of the bone. And when we're looking at ultrasound, we're looking to the wave of reflection that it's, it's a noise. It's a wave that crashes around water and liquid around it. Excellent. And which is why it doesn't go past bone. Exactly. Yeah, you can get a lot of artifacts with that, like bubbles, uh, and that can cause a disruption on your image as yeah. well. When you're doing an ultrasound and you're playing with the probe around, you can create air bubbles under the skin or under the hair that can cause you to have what it's called, what Dr. Garza say, artifacts. Yeah, to, to really do a good ultrasound takes so much refined technique. Yeah, sometimes we do before that, uh, like they say that the horse has swelling. Sometimes we'll just sweat them, right? Like we put sweats over the weekend uh, if it happens, you know, like late on the week and then just put them on standing wraps, cold hose, and then you come back because you also want to get rid of that edema or, you know, like cellulitis before you get a good image because then that's going to take a lot of the reflection uh, too and the quality of the uh, ultrasound won't be as good. If you have to on an emergency, I mean, this is it's important. Like sometimes on emergencies, we'll do an ultrasound because it's an emergency. But if it's something that can be rested and weighed and we can get rid of that so that we get a better acquisition and detect uh, smaller injuries, we'll do. So, Viviana, the, the worst thing for a veterinarian, you're doing a lameness exam, you have a pin pointed to an area, you take an x-ray, nothing shows up. You perform an ultrasound in an area, nothing shows up. Then what? You know it's in the fetlock or it's in the high suspensory area, but our common imaging modalities aren't working other than curse internally, what do we do? Other than getting an anxiety attack? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having nightmares? <laughs> Dreaming about that horse? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. other, we yeah. have bone scan, we have MRIs, we can also, yeah, if the ultrasound or the x-ray of the region we're working with doesn't give us a diagnosis, let's give an example. We know that there's something going on on the foot. And our x-ray didn't show something like, oh, this is the, the thing that is going on. We actually can ultrasound the foot itself because we have this huge thing called hoof that is hard. The wall. The wall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So in those cases, what we recommend is sending the horse for an MRI. An MRI is excellent way of looking deep into all the tissues because you have a complete view of them. And similarly to a bone scan, it's sort of you do this isotope, radioactive isotope that goes to 
an area of inflammation. So that helps us too. Exactly. There are more tools, not things we can do at the farm though. And also I, to complement what you guys were saying, there's injuries to the bone that we might not be able to see on the radiograph in the ultrasound, like a bone bruise, you know, like they are super painful. And even if you block the joint, sometimes those bone bruises won't block, right? So I think getting a, an MRI and those frustrating cases, uh, we can get a better approach to the case. See below the surface. See below the surface. Yeah, I love See that. See behind the wall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sometimes after a lameness is done, joint injections are recommended. Ali, how long do joint injections last? So that's a tricky question because it will depend on how the synovial within the joint is, right? Like, um, let's say that it's a horse that has no significant bony changes, right? Like, then there's no effusion in the joint, but you know, you know, and you want to pursue, it's a horse that is constantly training, and you know that there's wear and tear within the joint, right? You treat it, and I think starting by treating, that's going to tell you how long it's going to last. If we have identified it's that joint per se, and we're treating by localization, the joint, right? Like we know that it's, let's say, the fetlock joint and we come back and we treat. That might last up to like six to eight months, approximately six to eight. Uh, some horses can go up to a year and that's fine. It depends on how much they're going to be used, right? As the horse gets older, if we get on the maintenance joint injections as it's needed, I'll say if there's more wear and tear of the cartilage, I mean, that can change our approach, right? But I'll say, yeah, I think a, a common, you know, six to eight months approximately. I guess it just, it depends. On the on the horse, yeah. It depends on the injury, what they're doing for a living. Yeah, exactly. And the workload that horse has. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, that we have actually in the market different things that can help us keep that last a little bit longer. Like it doesn't have an expiry date. The joint injection doesn't have an expiry date. It's like it's going to last you six yeah. weeks. No, it doesn't have something like that. It's, there's not a rule and there's actually a bunch of different medications that we can use. There's autologous medications to prevent for any damages. There is hyaluronic acids that we can use and uh, different steroids also that depend on the joint that we're going to be treating, the medications that we're going to be picking to treat, right? If it's a high motion, low motion. So it will depend on exactly what anatomy part we're dealing with. I think we could probably have a whole podcast episode just on joint injections. I know, right? Oh my god! Because yeah. it's getting more and more. I mean, like, there's so many things for actually yeah. that, like, the medicine has progressed so much that we can use not only steroids that were the only ones that they used in like 20 years ago. We have different kind of treatments depending of what we're looking at. So if we have bone damage, if we had cartilage damage, if we are looking on a young horse, if we're looking on an older horse, if the thing is chronic, if the thing is acute, so. There's multiple factors that affect the efficiency, the duration, and the quality of that joint injection. So let's say with a typical joint injection, I don't know, like if there's a rule of thumb, if you inject your horse's joint on a Monday, when can somebody ride their horse again, Alejandra? So I usually give them a week. The first 48 hours to me is a stall rest. If horses do well on a stall rest, that's fine. We try to keep them quiet for 48 hours for the medication to act, right? Like if we're injecting on a steroid, we want that to settle, to be quiet. And also there's always a risk of doing injections, right? That's why we do it super clean in a clean environment. And we prep for so long before we do them because we're going to go inside the joint and there's always a risk of doing that. So we like uh, for the clients to stay on a stall rest 48 hours. And then after that, we do hand walks, a couple of days of hand walks. He can go and turn out if it's okay. And then for me, like by the fourth day, you can start doing either uh, 30 minutes of hand walk 
or tack walk if the horse does okay on tack walking. And then by the sixth day, you can do just like a regular, you know, like flat work and then progress to his regular uh, training by the sixth, seventh day. What's your protocol, Viviana? Because everybody's a little bit different. If we have time, I guess for me, a bit more time, it's, it's better, but sometimes we don't have. Yeah, it really depends on what you use and what kind of joint and what kind of injury you're dealing with. Yeah. But my protocol is pretty similar to what Dr. Garza said. Like the first 24 hours is strict as all rest. Then I just start hand walking on the 48 hours. Regarding the turnout, I'm a little bit conservative depending on the quality of the turnout, the attitude of the horse, because we have some very quiet horses that can be quiet in the paddock. And then we have the crazy ones that even though they're crippled, they want to go running and jumping and do silly stuff. So we need to remember that a joint injection is going to make them feel better, but it takes time to heal. Yep. We're getting rid of the pain factor, but we're still fighting the inflammatory response of that joint. So the turnout for me, it can be a little bit tricky and depends on the case I'm dealing with. But so after the 48 hours, uh, we continue hand walking until day four to five when they can start doing a light riding. Talking about light riding can be only walk or just a little bit of a stretching. And then on the seventh day, they can go back to regular flat work. And that will be my protocol. Right. Ali, why are preseason exams so important? I know you touched base on this a little bit beforehand, but maybe we could just elaborate a little bit more. Thank you. That's a really good question. So I think starting with a preseason exam, will tell us a lot about what to expect from your horse. So if we look at it uh, and we do notice that there's a bit of effusion here and there in any of the joints, or if, if anything is tender on palpation, then at least we know. I mean, doing a preseason exam doesn't mean that we're going to do injections right there. It's something that is going to just bring to attention little details uh, within the how the horse is moving or even like saddle feeding, you know, because things can change on the horse. Um, if he's uh, sore on his front feet, we can detect things, make suggestions for the farrier. We can start with radiographs uh, for like proper shoeing. Anything that needs to be addressed before the horse gets going on the showing season. And then you can have a more reliable relationship with your horse while you guys are having fun uh, showing. We as veterinarians, we make notes. We make sure that, okay, just keep an eye on this. If you notice anything flare up, just let us know and we can come back at it. And then sometimes we'll do them twice a year. Uh, based on their performance. And if you have any questions, we can always come back and address whatever little thing that was found on our uh, preseason exam. So it's almost like establishing a baseline. Yeah, exactly. I mean, every year changes, you know, like as horses get older, we might need to be more on top of things, right? So I think it's really important that if you know that you have a 17-year-old horse that you, you know, you know, you want to use it the whole sh show season, then you know, like, okay, well, I might have to be, you know, like, we can talk about supplements, we can talk about proper shoeing. And it's not like a four-year-old that you're just starting and, you know, like, maybe you're just going to do more looking at it and making suggestions and supplementations, but not so like, oh, I'm going to do a joint injection just because, right? We're not there yet. But it's really important, even if it's a young horse or an older horse, that we look at them just because we can pick up on things for a better performance in general. So Viviana, so sometimes you get a horse that's competing heavily through the season. You know, the way the show seasons are going, it's like it's rare to get a weekend off almost. It's probably, you know, if they're going to go to Florida, I mean, it's like they have no season off. So how often would you recommend for a horse to be evaluated? I mean, other than somebody's calling you and saying, you know, Dr. Hernandez, my horse is not feeling right, but 
are you recommending proactive exams throughout the season just to sort of assess where the horse is at? Of course, that will make our life so much easier because we kept track of what is going on with the horse. I like to make comparison with humans, especially high-performance athletes in human world. They get performance exams every two months. And if they're in the peak of their career, they get almost every week. We're going into a point where horses are considered high-performance athletes. As a high-performance athlete, you need to have someone behind you taking care of you all the time. So my recommendation, if you don't want us to be there every week, (laughs) at least if you have a competition that asks a little bit more for than the usual, I will say once a month or every two months, it's good to have the vet a couple of days later just to see how the horse is doing after that. Because there's tiny things that maybe you can feel, but you are not so sure. And we can help all of you as a team between the trainer, the farrier, the groom, the rider, and us as vets to decide exactly what is going on with this horse. It's all about keeping the performance at the top all the time. There are tiny things that like oh, a tiny sprain or maybe the equipment. As Dr. Garza says, things changes, like the wear and tear of things are always there. And for us to keeping a track of it makes everything so much easier. Well, I think we covered a lot. Before we sign off, Alejandra, is there anything we should have talked about that we haven't touched upon? Yes. I mean, just going on the same question that um, you asked me about uh, the pre-performance, pre-season examinations. I said it's important that when we do them, remember that it's not only focused on musculoskeletal, right? Uh, It's also focused on making sure that the horse is healthy. And I remember that horses showing are more predisposed to have GI upset just by trailering, a stress from moving one place to another, being exposed to different environments, right? So it's really important that when we look at them, we also think of them as a whole. And part of this pre-examination, it can tell us, you know, like we can talk about nutrition. And uh, remember that horses showing are really predisposed to get uh, gastric upset uh, and ulcers. We do have the service for uh, gastroscopies and uh, we can offer that too. And if we pick that up uh, in our early stage, we can just figure out a way to make a better recommendation for your horse. And then his performance will be complemented by the musculoskeletal evaluation and the gastric evaluation. Exactly. Low performance is not only caused by muscle, ligaments, bones and joints. It can be some internal medicine situation, some... Allergies, things like that. Exactly. It is funny because I keep on thinking of one horse. We always think of them as being young. They're athletic, but, you know, they're getting older and also they're predisposed to things that show up like Cushing's or, you know, as you said, the gastric ulcers. There's so many horses that are just, Doc, they're just not doing it like they're supposed to. Exactly. And you will be surprised how many cases of subclinical gastric ulcers we see. Like most of the horses that we have, they develop at some point gastric ulcers. And that's another subject for another time exactly. as well, too. That's a big <laughs> yeah. discussion. That, all the joint medications and <laughs> ulcers are big things. So thank you both for uh, joining us today. We are joined by Dr. Alejandra Garza and Dr. Viviana Hernandez. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of our EquiConnect podcast. If you have a topic that you would like to learn more about on our podcast, please contact us and let us know. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Thanks, thank everybody. you, guys. Bye. Thank you. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. 
Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.